welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to episode 54 of the Madden America podcast. And this week I'm delighted to say that I got a chance to chat with Dr. Sandy Steingard. Dr. Steingard is medical director at Howard Center, a community mental health center where she has worked for the past 21 years. She is also clinical associate professor of psychiatry at the College of Medicine of the University of Vermont. For more than 25 years, her clinical practice has primarily included patients who have experienced psychotic states. Dr. Steingard serves as board chair of the Foundation for Excellence in Mental Health Care. She was named to Best Doctors in America in 2003 and writes regularly for Mad in America. She is editor of the book Critical Psychiatry, due in 2019. Dr. Steingart, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat today for the Madden America podcast. And I'm thrilled to get the chance to chat today because I've admired your writing and learned so much from your webinars and presentations. So thank you for sharing so much great material. And to begin, really, I'd like to ask about you and what it was that first led you towards psychiatry. Well, first of all, thank you. I'm I'm, I'm honored to be asked to participate, and uh, I also want to thank you for the great work that you're doing. You had told me about this question. I was thinking about how to explain it because it's, um, you know, it's so personal and sort of complicated. Not all of it's all that interesting, but what happened to me is I entered medical school in the in the 70s in an East Coast medical school where at that time psychoanalysis was still the predominant conceptual framework for psychiatry. Uh, Chairs of psychiatry were psychoanalysts. Many of the faculty were psychoanalysts. And I wasn't really particularly familiar with it, but that was just um, a matter of coincidence. I didn't choose medical school to become a psychiatrist or that particular frame, but that's where I landed. This was in Boston Uh, Massachusetts in the 70s. Now, what I brought to the table was that I was a conflicted, somewhat unhappy person. And I also, in thinking back on it, I, because it's sort of interesting to think about the themes that ran through my life. I think I was, um, I felt like an outsider. And so there were two things that came together that got me very early on interested in psychiatry and in particular in psychoanalysis. And one was that psychiatry was considered a a very unpopular kind of looked down upon field. And so I gravitated a little bit because of my identification as an outsider. Mm. Um, But the second thing is that I was an unhappy person and I thought that this was a way to resolve some of the things that I was struggling with at the time. And I felt, I fell in love with psychoanalysis as a way to understand myself, to understand the world. And I became deeply, you know, entrenched in that world. I spent a lot of time reading, even in medical school. I remember on my surgery rotation, I carried a copy of Freud's interpretation of dreams in my pocket of my white coat covered in white paper, um, which, you know, was, you know, I look back on this as silly um, in a way, but in in a little bit of that part of me that wanted to be an outsider, um, but also it reflected the fact that I had this deep interest. So that's really what led me into psychiatry (laughs) uh, back many years ago. Great, thank you. And Sandy, you're known for having a a somewhat sceptical or critical view of psychiatry. So what was it that led you to question mainstream approaches? Well, I think the story about psychoanalysis is relevant because what's happened for me is that I would get pulled into something that seems so promising and dive into it deeply only to find its deep flaws. And the first aspect of psychiatry where that happened was psychoanalysis. So I, um, so I would say like my, um, interest in psychiatry has been one of a series of disappointments. Um, and that was the first one. So I finished my residency. I enrolled in the psychoanalytic Institute and over time became aware that 
it was so problematic in that it was hard to step outside of it and think about it in a critical way. I, I mean, I would say be, before going to medical school, I should say that I thought of myself as scientifically inclined. I studied chemistry in college, and when I was a teenager, I was very interested in math and science and went into college thinking I would be a scientist. And there still is that part of me. I mean, it's interesting that now really you know, late in life, I've begun to read about postmodernism. I mean, I came to that quite late. So I would say, you know, it's important to understand that I very much am a product of modernism and the belief in science. So when I was studying psychoanalysis and found that you could never challenge it without it being turned back on a reflection of your own internal conflicts, there's no way, uh, it was just sort of embedded in the way that we talk to be able to step outside of it and critique it on its own merits. And, you know, I joke around that, that people could say about me, if you want to look for some internal conflict or internal neurosis to explain my behavior, I mean, you'll, you, you could make a career of it. I mean, I'm not denying that that's there, but the problem, the fact that you couldn't have some independent critical conversation about the ideas and premises and suppositions about this work that didn't lead to some kind of circular argument about those critiques reflecting one's own internal conflicts seemed to me highly problematic. There seemed to be no quality control. So I met some very smart, really gifted people, people who I'm sure were helpful. I mean, I was in psychoanalysis and I felt some, one of them, one experience was quite damaging and the other one was really quite wonderful. But the problem is it seemed random, you know, because there was no standard. And so what happened next, Sandy? So then I was finished my residency and moving along and needed to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And I had always been very interested in psychosis. I surprisingly, and I found it fascinating. I mean, I was very drawn to it. And I decided to stay with that. And I happened to move to the University of Pittsburgh. I moved to Pittsburgh where I was employed by the Department of Psychiatry, which is a very good, still a very good major research department. And it was so big that you could specialize by diagnosis. And I was, I don't want to offend people who don't like the word, but I worked on a unit that was called the schizophrenia unit. It was an inpatient unit. And I sort of had a second training because the University of Pittsburgh was not run by psychoanalysts. It was run by people who considered themselves scientists. And I learned about what some people would call biomedical psychiatry. And, you know, and I, my frame uh, going into that was that I felt that most of the things in psychiatry that we were encountering were so murky and didn't fit into that frame. But at the time, and I still struggle with this, to be perfectly honest, psychosis seemed to be something that fit that model, you know, the medical model of, of assessment, evaluation, coming up with a differential diagnosis and proceeding with treatment based on that. So I felt more comfortable doing that. And I just, I don't know, I just still find it so interesting to talk to people that are having these altered states. I feel for them in some way that I can't really explain. That's one thing that hasn't really changed through this. So that was where I was. And I left Pittsburgh and moved to Vermont where I am now and went into just pure clinical work. And because I still was interested in working with people with psychosis, that led me to work in the public sector. And that's what I've done since 1993. Now, that was another major turning point for psychiatry because in the late 80s and into the 90s, a lot of new drugs were introduced, including a whole lot of new antipsychotic drugs. And I, again, had an excitement about this because the drugs that we had been using, we knew were very difficult and caused a lot of side effects and people didn't like taking them. And there, were, there seemed to be this promise that these newer drugs would be more tolerable. And I remember being very excited. In fact, I did give one talk for a drug company. It was Eli Lilly in 1996. And it was um, a turning point because I was excited about Zyprexa. I, it, I thought that this was going to be a better drug. And I was flattered that the drug rep asked me to give a talk because I thought about it as him recognizing that I had something special. 
And I gave the talk and I felt kind of dirty afterwards because he gave me the slides. It was not a critical review. It was clear that I was a mouthpiece for the company. And then I also went to other talks because this was very common in the time. Again, innocently wanting to learn information. And it was very quickly apparent to me that these were very poor academic talks. And then I watched as these drugs came out and were overpromoted. I mean, even at the time reading the literature that was available, the published literature, it was clear that what was being promoted was something different. And the promoters were the leaders of my field. So what happened is that I was observing in the clinic and uh, this disconnect between what was being promoted about these drugs and what I was observing with patients who were taking them and also the disconnect between my own interpretation of what the literature said and what was being promoted. And this was extremely disconcerting and disappointing to me. I mean, there were also things like them dropping off gifts and food for us. And it was clear that this was marketing. And it was very upsetting that that was given to me. And, you know, I'm a physician and I can afford to buy my own food. And the people that I'm treating can't. It's a tragedy. And there were worse things that went on. Um, so I started reading. And one book that had a huge influence on me and still is a great book is called The Truth About the Drug Companies by Marsha Angel, who was the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, the first woman editor. And she had been writing about this with her husband, Arnold Relman, who had also been an editor. And these editors of medical journals really were seeing the problems in a much more pernicious way than I was. And so she, you know, collected the data. And I think that book was great. So I was reading a lot about this through the 2000s. And a few books are Daily Meds by, I believe that one's by Melody Peterson. Um, another book by Allison Bass. These are reporters who were writing about the problems with pharma. And I was angry. So that's my second juncture of being a critical psychiatrist. I mean, I was a critical physician. And along the lines, I picked up this book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, which people on Man in America know that Robert Whittaker wrote a book called Man in America, which I did not read first. I read Anatomy of an Epidemic in 2011. And that, that entered sort of the third phase of my uh, critical psychiatry career. And as you know, to me, the most compelling part of that book was this issue that long-term use of antipsychotics might actually worsen the outcome than improve it. And that's a different idea. That was not the, the idea in the field, and it was not the idea that I had. And I thought the book was well enough written that I could not put it down and go on with my professional life the way it had been. I didn't feel that I could accept it on face value. He's not a physician. He's a journalist. But it, I felt I needed to do more research. So I basically started to read the primary literature that he cited and to talk to people and ask other people that I respected what they thought. It, it would have been a lot easier for me in a way if someone who was critical of the book could have given me an argument that was cogent that would have allowed me to say, you know, there's no weight to this argument or there's not enough weight to this argument, but that's not what happened. What happened was that people got angry. They got angry at me for talking about it. They told me that he was cherry picking. They never could tell me if he was cherry picking what were the branches or the leaves or the rest of the tree. And I was just innocently trying to, I mean, I t started talking about it because I wanted to find out what he had gotten wrong. Now, I also did email Bob Whitaker and, you know, that started a big exchange and he was very willing to engage with me and he clearly knows the literature and he would give me articles and we would go back and forth and that all led to me blogging on his website and then that led to opening up a whole other world and I've now, I'm talking to you and I have these friends from around the world. It's a strange phenomenon to me, but, um, and the other thing that happened is I'm still very, very interested in the drugs and how to think about them and how to use them responsibly, if to use them responsibly. But I also started studying open dialogue, which he talks about as, in that book, because if I was thinking, well, if I'm not going to rely so much on the drugs, what else can I do? And even though I had this early training 
in psychoanalysis and actually had early training and working with people in, psych, in a psychotherapeutic way who were psychotic, I didn't really... I didn't really connect those dots in a way, and I still am very skeptical of psychoanalysis. So I was looking for other things, and that led me to the study of open dialogue. And in part because of Bob Whitaker's work and other people promoting it, there were these opportunities to begin to study it. So I went and trained with Mary Olson at the Institute for Dialogic Practice, and I've now been to the meeting that's held among people that are interested in the work, this work in Northern Europe. and. We've also been able to set up a training program and something that we call collaborative network approach in Vermont that it draws on that way of working and other related ways of working. And then learning about the critical psychiatry network, which is mostly based in the UK and uh, joining them. We, we have a small group in North America. Um, getting to meet Joanna Moncrief has been a very important, wonderful part of my life. And I, her work has been very, very helpful for me to make sense of the drugs. And I've, I've basically um, have incorporated a drug-centered approach into what I'm doing. So that was a very, very long answer to a very short question. Uh, but that it's been a, it's a, you know, I'm talking about 30 years of my life. My life in psychiatry has been one of um, repeated disappointments, and then you know, engaging with new ideas. I don't know when the current ideas that I have, I'll find that I'm disappointed with them. But I, you know, I do try to be both engaged and enthusiastic, but I also try to hold to the best of my ability, a critical stance. I mean, I think being a critical thinker is part of being a good doctor in my view. So yeah, but I, I worry about that. That's why I don't mind being public because it does leave me open to people challenging me. And I, I'm glad for that. It, it's sometimes painful, but I think it's good. Absolutely. And I wanted to ask, Sandy, I've heard other critical psychiatrists say that they've been treated by their contemporaries or peers almost as if somehow they are bringing the profession of psychiatry into disrepute by questioning the mainstream. And yet, to my mind, unless we're willing to criticise current practice, we can't possibly move forward. So I wondered if you'd experienced any of that yourself. Well, I I, I think I've been very lucky because... I, of where I live. Um, I live in a really wonderful place. It's pretty open to different ideas, different ways of thinking about things. But also when I, I read Anatomy of an Epidemic in 2011 and that, you know, and very soon after, uh, it was January 2012 when I started blogging. Robert Whitaker lives in Massachusetts, so it's not very far away. And there were a lot of people very interested in his book. So he came up here and did a lot of public speaking here. And then we invited him to give a grand rounds at the University of Vermont in December 2011. I remember that because it was like standing room only. And then afterwards, we had a meeting with the Vermont Psychiatric Association. And I introduced him. I mean, I didn't, uh, there was a group of us that invited him, but I introduced him. And very quickly at that point, my name was very much associated with Robert Whitaker, which I'm, I don't mind. I, I really... I, I I admire and Bob and I consider him a friend now. I mean, it's been a long time and we've worked on different projects together. So I'm proud of that. But it 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 also meant that um, sometimes people didn't really ask me a lot about what I was thinking or what how I was putting this all together, and they made some assumptions about me. And I'm not even sure if the assumptions were false. It just they weren't. They didn't engage. It was a strange kind of thing. And so there was some uh, some unpleasant interactions that I had that I really don't want to go into. For instance, I'll say one thing is one person said, I'm afraid to talk to you because you're going to blog about me. And I, that bothered me because I've never, I've never done something personal. To me, this is an intellectual thing. It's not a personal thing. And I won't, I won't, I mean, I, I hopefully that's, anonymized enough that I'm not pointing any fingers because it's not a personal thing. And it, it, it was frustrating to me that people would say things to me about my ideas that weren't necessarily my ideas. I ended up, I, I've done a, stu not a study, but a kind of a chart review because I started to talk to people about tapering doses. And I, again, just like when I wanted to do this with um, Olanzapine back in 1996, I wanted to keep track of what my experiences were because I know enough about memory, particularly my memory, that it would be distorted. I would remember dramatic things, and I might not remember the usual routine things. So I just kept a list of people 
who I was talking to, who I thought were good candidates for a conversation about drug tapering. And then I went back and looked at what had happened to them at, at one year, two years. And then I just published a paper on the five-year outcome. So along the way, I think it was at two years, I gave a grand rounds about this. And so I talked about why I thought this was legitimate, what I was doing, what the outcomes were so far. And it's interesting because one of the comments in the audience was, oh, this was not nearly as radical as I thought it was going to be. And it was like, well, where did that idea come from? Those are really minor. I mean, I'm very aware of how privileged I am. I work for a wonderful organization. I've been very upfront with them. Like when I was going to start blogging, I said, you know, you need to know this. This is kind of a public thing. And I've talked about it. I've given talks where I work. I'm engaged with people. And my agency has been very, very supportive. So I have a very solid, well-paying job. And I'm also, you know, towards the end of my career. I don't know what it would be like if I was 40. You know, I'm in my 60s. Um, but I've been lucky and I actually feel guilty about how lucky I've been. I feel guilty about being a psychiatrist. I, I feel like I've harmed people. I'm not sure that like in the sum of my career, I've done more good than bad. And I don't feel like I should be benefiting. So now I get invited to talks and there is a kind of... Um, emotional benefit. You know, it's flattering in a way. And I feel bad that I'm benefiting. So I try to be very careful about not benefiting financially from any of this because I don't need to. And I think coming from a field that's been so corrupted by conflicts of interest, I try to be um, over diligent. So I'm aware that I'm benefiting in some ways, but um, I try to really monitor it and um, to, to have some integrity about the work I'm doing. So I don't feel like I've had terrible things happen to me. I just, you know, I'm, I, I joined the American Association of Community Psychiatry in something like 2013 because I was looking for colleagues who were interested in these topics and might engage with me. I've never been much of a joiner, but then last December I decided to run for their board on kind of a critical psychiatry platform. And I mean, I don't think it was a big election. I think who knows why I got, I ran, but I got elected. So, I mean, that's a nice thing that someone who is talking in this way is voted upon by some people and people have been very welcoming and, and are interested in what I'm doing and really wonderful. I've met some very wonderful people who are doing good work, working with really, you know, disenfranchised people in tough communities. And I've, I, I have, that's helped me a lot to meet some of these young psychiatrists who I, greatly admire and are very open to these ideas. And Sandy, you talked a little there about how you've instituted critical thinking in your work and in how you practice. Has that been a challenging thing to do? Because I'm aware that a critical perspective might be a challenge for mainstream psychiatrists, but equally there might be patients who want to come along and do expect the drugs and the diagnosis. So I wondered how patients respond to that more critical approach. Well, I think that's a really good and important question because in some of the critical spaces where I talk to people or write with people, the narrative is psychiatrists are pushing these drugs on people. Certainly that's true. People can be forced to take particularly antipsychotic drugs, and that's certainly something to talk about. Um, but in practice, most of the time, you know, the the bigger argument that I encounter is when I don't believe the drugs are going to be terribly helpful and somebody wants them because it's not, you know, the, the, the place of psychiatry is um, we're embedded within a larger culture. And although psychiatrists and drug companies, you know, have promoted the narrative, the narrative is very much embedded in certainly U.S. culture, this narrative that human distress is best understood in a medical sense as an illness and that there are drugs that are very effective in treating that is old. It goes back to the 70s and has been heavily promoted since the 80s. So, you know, I often think of, I, I heard the story from David Foster Wallace, and I don't know whether he took it from someone else, but it's about, you know, the two young fish swimming in the water and the old fish swims by them and says, how's the water boys? And they say, what's water? What is water? And that's that what is water question comes up a lot because when people, you know, I'll, I'll see some people and they're in a lot of distress and, you know, it's, you know, depression. Well, let me just say that's even using a medical term, sadness, fear, worry, difficulty with sleep, 
they're distressed, they're suffering, and I know that they're suffering. And they and and they're let's say it's someone who has been tried on some drugs that may be helpful and they the drugs haven't worked and then I have I say I don't think I don't think a drug's going to be terribly helpful and I'm the I'm the holder of the drugs you know I have the prescription pad I have the prescribing authority and that's a tough conversation and people sometimes feel like I'm holding back or I'm not giving them what they want and that's where my narrative to say you know the overarching you know the overall data on the SSRIs is not that strong. Now, I won't refuse to prescribe them after we've had a discussion about this, but if someone's been on three or four of them, or they're already on two or three, and I I honestly can't even really think of anything else to add, it's still a, a difficult conversation. So that's one thing that has come up. The other thing that's encountered is more subtle. And this does have to do with the fact that I have this somewhat public persona. I mean, I live in a very small town and a small state. And so, and I don't know what people know. I don't know who, I don't promote my blog at work uh, because I, I just feel uncomfortable about it. So people can find it. I mean, I will, I'm not secretive about it, but I don't go out of my way um, but I talk about a lot of this stuff and I have a few people that I work with who I really, I, 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 I love, I admire, we have a good relationship. We've known each other for a while and it's come out that sometimes people feel like they're, I'm going to be disappointed in them if they do not choose to taper. And I, that worries me. I think that I have an obligation to be very clear with people that that's just not true, that I want to respect what they want, that I'm not pushing anybody to make a decision, that my role is to just inform people and help people make the best decision they can. So, you know, it has to do with the power differential and the authority given to me. And that's been kind of a surprising thing to learn about. Um, and, and so, you know, we try to talk about it and, but, and, and come up with some resolution, but that, that's one, those are some of the things that have come up in practice. Thank you. That's really helpful for my understanding. And in that vein, Sandy, you're editor of a book due in 2019 called Critical Psychiatry. And I was very interested to read that the book aims to help clinicians apply transformational strategies in their clinical work. So with an eye to that, what would you like to see for the future in terms of how we can best respond to the growing number of people experiencing distress or trauma that the medical models seem to be failing? Well, there's a few things that I talk about in the book and it, it has to do with how we, what's the narrative in the office. So a a couple of ideas that are promoted in this book is this, is the drug centered model of um, drug action that Joanna Moncrief has written about. And she is one of the author, one of the contributors to the book that rather than talk about the drugs as drugs that treat a particular disease. We talk about them as psychoactive drugs that may have some benefit for some people at some point in their life. So that's one thing that we recommend, that we promote in the book. The other thing is there's a very, um, I I mean, I'm very proud of the book and very appreciative of the contributors. Um, one of the chapters I think is very interesting by Justin Carter and Sarah Kamins on the diagnostic system where they take a, a very comprehensive, um, it's a very comprehensive discussion about the different levels of discourse that are applied to the crit- critique of diagnosis and that it helps to clarify w- at what level you're talking about. So it goes from kind of, you know, the, the question of what is an illness and, and what do we mean by those words all the way down to the corruption that played out in the making of the DSM. So these are all, I'm not going it, to, it's hard to, you can have them on to talk about it because it's a very detailed chapter that I won't do justice to. But in the end, I think for in practice, it's the need to place diagnosis in a narrow kind of area, that these are labels, that they don't tell us that much about what the cause is or what the problem is. They're just labels of a collection of symptoms that tend to cluster together, although they don't always cluster together. I mean, it's a, such a complicated 
conversation, but to be explicit with people about what these labels do and don't mean. So you you want to avoid someone walking out of your office saying, I'm a schizophrenic, or even I have schizophrenia. If they want to use that word, and, if, and A, if they don't want to use that word, that's A-okay, it doesn't matter. But if someone wants to say, well, I've had these experiences, and this psychiatrist says that I meet the criteria for this label, that's how it would be. And it's the same thing with families because it becomes a pernicious thing when people kind of identify with this label. It has meanings for them that need to be explored and understood because sometimes it has a meaning that may not be consistent with what we know or don't know about um, about these diagnostic categories. So that's another big area that we talk about. And we also promote giving more privilege to those with lived experience, not only um, in developing research and in defining what questions need to be asked, um, but also being present and being colleagues, uh, that, that, the, that the experience of lived experience, that working in that space with people can be incredibly helpful and uh, that psychiatrists need to, you know, would be well served by welcoming in that group in a whole different variety of ways. There's a lot of ways that people who have experienced psychiatric treatment at different levels can and are open about that can really contribute to improving the quality of, of care. And the other thing is I talked about my studies of open dialogue. For me, that way of working can become kind of a centerpiece of this whole narrative. Like you, you've just been talking to me for close to an hour and you can see that I'm not one who's few of words and that's sort of how I am in the world. So these are really complicated topics. And if I try to explain this to someone in one setting, I'm going to like, it, it's not going to go well. I'm going to do too much talking. It's going to be boring. I'm not going to be sensitive to what this person wants to hear. So this takes a lot of time. It's an ongoing process. And dialogic practice gives you a setting where, A, I privilege the perspective of the people who come to see me. How do you think about this problem? How, and everybody, how do the parents or friends or spouses, partners think about it? How does the person at the center of concern think about the problem? What is this like? You know, it, it does come, it very much overlaps with a trauma-based approach. Not focusing on what's wrong with you, what happened to you? Not only what happened to you, how are you making sense of this? What's important to you? What's important to you? What do you want to get out of this encounter? And then, you know, at some point to share how I think about it, you know, and dialogic practice gives you a space to do that. And that's, has been extremely valuable to me. So these are all the ideas in the book in terms of saying the question of the book was, if you are a critical psychiatrist, if you, if you think critically about the field, can you still practice? I mean, that's the first question. Can you still practice? Is it ethical to practice? And if you think it is, how do you do that? How do you integrate those ideas with your day-to-day -day life? So we attempt to answer that. And uh, these, I've just run on about some of the uh, ideas that we've come up. But that's that's the premise of the book. Great. Thank you. Well, I hope it's read far and wide and these transformational principles are applied as soon as possible. Thank you. I hope so too. And Sandy, if it's okay, I'd like to move on to talk about something which is of interest to me, given my history, and that's around informed consent, because it strikes me as such a key moment in the doctor-patient relationship. So could we talk a little about why achieving informed consent is so important, not just for the patient, but for the doctor too? Well, one thing I want to say is uh, maybe we can just define what informed consent means, because I think when I get into conversations with people, um, there does seem, at least the way I talk about it may not be the way they're talking about it, so we can be explicit about that. So I think that people often think if you, if you go to the hospital and you have a procedure, someone comes in and there's a piece of paper and they rattle off the risks and benefits and you have to say that you understand them and then you sign the piece of paper and it's like a one and done kind of thing. Although presumably, you know, you had some conversations before you arrived at the hospital 
with the doctor recommending them where the doctor talked about why he or she is recommending them and what some of the complications could be. That's also part of informed consent. If you sign into a research study, again, there's a, you know, often, you know, a little novel of, of information that you need to read and sign in. And again, there's also a conversation about it, but the idea is like, it's, it's this one time thing. I think informed consent is basically embedded. It's what the doctor patient relationship is, you know, it's an ongoing conversation. I mean, early on in my career, I thought I wanted to be a teacher, you know, to teach in, in medicine. And I ended up not finding that really didn't suit me. But I do think that um, the doctor-patient relationship is teaching, although as I've come to see in more recent years, that it should be a more collaborative exchange. So I'm sharing my knowledge and expertise, but the person that's in my office is also sharing his or her knowledge and expertise. And that that there's a there's a mutual sharing and a you know or you know mutual understanding about what we're doing, but all of that is informed consent. What do I know? What, what how do I think about the? You've just told me your story. How do I think about that? How do I make sense of it? How do I, as a trained psychiatrist, make sense of what you've just told me? And to be explicit about what I know and what I don't know. And then if I am recommending a treatment, what are the treatments and what are the pros and cons? But honestly, it, it, it comes up in almost every visit. When I wrote my paper, this, this you know chart review of this tapering experience, you know, inviting people into to talk about tapering their medications. In one version, I use shared decision-making. And then the reviewers, I mean, appropriately said, well, what shared decision-making tool did you use? And there are tools out there that really enhance the process. But I was, I had sort of appropriated that term to say this is an attitude and a process, but I can't prove it, you know, because I didn't study it. I'm just, it's my values. So every single time I meet with somebody, there's some informed consent. How are you doing? What are we going to do next? Or, you know, staying on what you're on is doing something. And what are the pros and cons? What do you want to do? The, it's, it's, I feel like that's all I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. I mean, maybe there's other things that happen in that exchange, but a core part of it is what I would say falls under informed consent. And it's, I can't, I don't know how, I don't, I wouldn't know what I was doing if I didn't think about it in that way. I wouldn't know what, what I, you know, I'm going to go to work in a half hour and I don't know what it would be. I mean, there's support and there's connection and there's, you know, you know, making a human connection. So maybe that's, a, that's something you could parse out from informed consent, but um, it's, it, to me, it's very much embedded in, in the work that we do. Well, it's intriguing for me to think about informed consent as a flexible and movable thing because the model that I was sold was really it was a one-off, one-time deal. But the concept of informed consent being a reactive and changeable thing to me seems much healthier. Like I said, I, I, I don't think I've ever really worked in a different way. I mean, obviously, I'm not the best judge of my own practice, but my own all I can say honestly is my own perception is I don't think I've ever really been different What's changed is um, I've reconsidered the recommendation that I did give for many years that people would be best off if they stayed on. If someone had had a psychotic episode, particularly if someone had a few psychotic episodes that I was, my recommendation would be to stay on the medications indefinitely because of the risk of relapse. But so I've changed that conversation, but I still think I always thought of the doctor-patient relationship as one of informed consent. In fact, one thing that used to annoy me with my colleagues is that when I made this shift from being, uh, you know, wanting to be a psychoanalyst, so, you know, my core identity was more like as a psychotherapist, and then I started treating psychiatrists, it was the outside world that reframed me from becoming like a psychodynamic psychiatrist to a biological psychiatrist. I never bought into that. And then worse, the narrative was like, biological psychiatrists don't talk to their patients. Like, whoever said that? I mean, psychiatry is based on talk. I mean, even if I was working within sort of a medical model that I needed to sort of hear a person's experience and to, in order to arrive at a diagnosis and make a treatment recommendation, I only could learn about that from having a conversation and having an alliance, having a relationship, building up some sense of trust seemed extremely important and particularly important when someone is, let's say, bombarded by other kinds of voices or feeling very, 
you know, worried or frightened. I mean, I remember as a young resident, uh, this lovely woman came into the hospital who felt like people were spying on her and listening to her. And in that time, the, uh, the offices that we had, the interview rooms were very, very small and tight. And not only that, they were replacing the phones in the hospital. So we were in this tiny little room with a hole in the wall and wires sticking out. And this was really, this really scared her. And she was quite sweet. So what we did was we walked to the cafeteria of the hospital. It was the middle of the afternoon. It was empty. And we found a table in the middle that was like far away from windows, from walls, from phones. And we whispered to each other. And she told me about what was happening. Like that's that's a that's a human relationship that's happening. I don't know. To me, that was sort of an intuitive thing. That it's it's so confusing and and messed up. And some of it is are these constraints that were that came that were that came from psychiatry. These delineations on what what it means to be a psychiatrist and what different psychiatrists do. But to me, it felt like that part of it. I don't think has changed. Maybe some of the content's changed, but that other part of like you need to have a relationship, you need to find some way to have an alliance to build trust, to explain to people how you're thinking about things, what the risks are. I don't I don't know another way to be. Yeah, and it strikes me as central to putting the patient at the heart of their own recovery rather than adopting a dictatorial approach. Yeah. And Sandy, I also wanted to mention that I was reading your latest Mad in America blog, which discussed how well neuroleptic drugs work. And reading that piece, it struck me how important it is to understand what constitutes the evidence base that we've traditionally used for assessing psychiatric drug safety or efficacy. You gave an example in your blog where you noted the way that pharmaceutical companies recruit people into the clinical trials can skew the data that comes from that trial and so could distort the evidence base. So do these limitations have an impact on the evidence base that we use to make judgments about psychiatric drugs? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that doing these drug studies is difficult because even sort of the basic premise of translating, you, you need to... Um, have a computation for the human experience, right? In order to do a study, you need to have some way of translating what a person is experiencing into some kind of numerical form. Mm. This is for quantitative research, right? So someone has sadness, can't sleep, this kind of stuff. You, you, you talk to the person and you have a rating scale and you rate the experience on that scale. And right then and there, and this is how research has been done since the modern era, you know, we're going back into the 60s and it's been refined and it's not that old of a field really, but so you'll hear things about like the Hamilton depression rating scale, or I think in the study that I talked about, they talked about the, um, the PANS, the positive and negative symptom scale, which is a newer one. I think going back to the late 80s or early 90s. So it'll it'll have um, 30 questions and you know things like voices and paranoid ideas. But what happens is a human being sits down and talks to another human being and asks them these questions and needs to translate their words into a number. And right then and there you have a problem because it's tough. Now there are scientific ways to make this more valid. So you'll have two, you know, you'll have two different people go in and administer the scale and you want to have what's called inter-rater reliability. You want to have that, you know, two different people talking to the same person will come up with a, um, a, a similar number. And that certainly helps. But having done a little bit of that in my career, I just knew that there was difficulty. For instance, with voice hearing, people characterize and experience that in a lot of different ways and they also don't always disclose. And so I've had the experience of feeling fairly certain that someone was having some other kind of hallucinatory experience on the way they were acting and how they were responding. But if I would say something like, are you hearing voices? And I could say in a lot of different ways, the answer would be no. So how do I translate that into my scale. So this is probably going a lot broader maybe than you wanted, but that's that's sort of a beginning thing that people just need to know is there. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but it's good for people to understand how this is done. Now, a second problem that we've run into, that they've run into recently is who enters into studies because 
so many psychiatric drugs are out there and available on the market that you need to have someone who's willing to stop whatever they're on. The, a, they need to be willing to enter a study. So that's going to be a certain population. They need to be willing to stop whatever they're on and go on to some new drug. And that's, you know, people who find the drugs to be useful um, and are worried about what would happen when they stop them might be less inclined to go into the study. And so um, you're getting a very selected population. And what's developed o- around the world Carl Elliott, who, who's an ethicist, uh, who's a brilliant guy, and he writes on Man America and elsewhere, has described this the best, you know, but there are businesses that their job is to do these drug studies and they advertise and people come in off the street. And those people may be different from, you know, other people. You know, first of all, there are people that often, they don't, they, they may have been on a lot of different drugs. They may have They've learned the system. They may need know. They may learn how to answer these questions to get into the system, or they've they failed a lot of drugs already, so that that's why they're more open to it. I mean, there's just a lot of problems, and people approach it in different ways. So, for instance, one of the reasons, you know, it's probably incorrect to say, let's say that the studies show us that antidepressants aren't effective. I mean, that's probably not the best way to characterize that large area of research. What you what seems to me more accurate to say is they don't appear to be substantially more effective than placebo for most of the people that take them. And that's important because when someone takes a drug, they may feel better. The question is you never know whether it was a direct drug action of that particular drug or it was something else that happened in the encounter. So people will talk to the high placebo response rate as the problem. And so researchers in psychiatry will talk about how to dampen placebo response, which is a very different way than saying, like, these drugs don't work. We should look for some other kind of paradigm. So these are problems that go around there. And I mean, it's been talked about a lot more with the antidepressant drugs, but this paper that I talked about talked about um, the antipsychotic drugs. And I think that is surprising to people. You know, I think the narrative out there is, uh, you know, the the problem is that people don't have access to the drugs, there aren't enough hospital beds, and we just need to get more people on them. And I, I do know of people who seem to derive great benefit from antipsychotic drugs. I do prescribe them for a living. I think that they have a place for some people, but I just don't think, pe- I think people overestimate their general efficacy. And so we have a system of care based on sort of a model that most people are going to respond. And therefore the way to improve the mental health system is to you know, make sure we have easier access to the drugs. And I don't think that's going to get us exactly where we want to be based on my read of the literature. Absolutely. It's so difficult, isn't it? And it goes right back to what you were talking about earlier with informed consent. Because for me as a patient, if I don't really have an understanding that the evidence base isn't totally reliable, it's incredibly difficult to make a judgment about whether a drug will be the right approach for me. It's almost a try it and see rather than an evidence-based decision. Well, it's true and it's hard. I mean, I was just glancing over at the blog and and the other thing that um, I write about there that I think is important because of, you know, things get translated. Like research these days goes through a funnel of translation until you're reading about it in your local paper and things get watered down and a lot of nuances lost. So even the concept of response and remission which is will be defined by the researchers, you know, in the newspaper where what you read, and this is all of medicine, this drug works. Well, that's a complicated question. What does it mean that a drug works? So somewhere along the line, the researchers need to define what kind of change in the radius scale is going to be defined as a response. And then, you know, they define that and then they have two groups and then they need to find that there's a statistical difference between the group that gets active drug and the group that gets placebo. And one way that research studies are really misunderstood is, first of all, the marker for response may be a very, a a relatively small reduction in points on the rating scale. Like one that I think people may think, oh, I'm going to be all better when in fact there's a, like a 20% reduction in points may not be something that the man on the street would define as being all better. That's one thing. The other thing is 
statistical significance. So you need to show that there's a statistical difference between the group on the drug and the group that's on placebo. And if you have enough numbers, what statistics does is to help us perceive small differences. That's like people don't get that. So you may have a, a statistically significant difference between the sample groups, but the difference may not be that great. But that'll get rolled out through the, you know, the whole PR operation of, of, of studies into this group work, this drug works. When in fact, when you dig down, what you find is there's a small response, a small reduction, and the difference between placebo and, and drug, although statistically significant, probably might not be a clinically meaningful difference. Now, that's a, that's such a different way of talking about it than um, response. And, you know, you know about Man America Continuing Education, which I'm also involved in, and we've just been talking about doing a course on how to read the scientific literature. And, and, and I'm not an expert, you know, but like to read it, if you could read it the way I would read it, that would be good. And anybody can read it the way I would read it. I'm just, you know, but give people tools so that they can kind of be better aimed at making their own decisions about it. Because some of this stuff is basic, but I think it's like really broadly misunderstood. Even among people that, you know, I, I'm considered allies with, I sometimes get, you know, not, we're not always like talk, having the same conversation because of people not having the tools to, to read literature in a way that they can interpret it for themselves, which I think is a good thing. I hope that doesn't sound all like um, elitist or anything, because honestly, I think that it's just a tool. It's a, it's a skill that not everybody gets and, and people can learn this. Well, as you said, Sandy, I think it's so important to realize that the way that clinical trial data is interpreted and reported has such a profound impact on the data that we use to make treatment decisions. And I also feel very strongly that the evidence base should be welcoming lived experience and that the data would be so much more robust and helpful if real patient experiences were captured. Yeah, I, I agree. And like, you know, as I said in the book, that was it was important for me to do my best to represent that perspective. I mean, it will be for others to judge how effective, although there is a um, a really wonderful chapter written by Emily Shira Cutler, who's also connected to Man America, and um, she kind of elaborated on the neurodiversity movement, the Mad Pride movement, and how those perspectives differ. And so I hope to at least, you know, have psychiatrists understand to some extent why it's important to bring the voices of people with lived experience, even into how you design what questions you ask. You know, that's, a, that's an important thing. Research is expensive, and there's only so much money, research money to go around. So People with lived experience may have very different questions than psychiatrists, and we need to hear that and, you know, take that into account. Well, Sandy, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. And as always, I've learned a huge amount from listening to you. Okay. Well, thank you. Take care, James. So I'd like to thank Sandy for that interview. And if you'd like to know more about her work, you can find links in the post that accompanies this interview on madanamerica.com. So thanks for listening. And until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.